The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the UC Board of Regents, or Miriam Lopez, Santa Ana activist who recently passed. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the January 26, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, returning to the show is my guest, UCI Professor of Public Health, Andrew Neumer, again staying with us for the full hour. Let's introduce him now. With the appointments in public health and sociology, Andrew's research interests include health and mortality, the 1918 influenza pandemic, demography methods, mathematical sociology. He's still quite in demand on all kinds of media. It's generous of him to join us once again. His Twitter handle is at Andrew Neumer for timely hot takes and useful leads. Andrew comes to us today from his home in Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Andrew Neumer. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be speaking to KUCI listeners again. Well, you were last here on September 8th, 2020, and we're recording this at 1300 hour, January 22nd. Andrew, have you yelled outside a primal scream over what's taken place since our last show? Uh, well, metaphorically, maybe. Uh, I mean, it's there's been uh, a lot of water over the dam since then, and uh, you know, we're definitely in the throes of, of, uh, of the pandemic quite bad. Uh, the last few days um, have shown some green shoots of, uh, of decline, which is uh, something that we're all very happy to, you know, know. But both locally here in Orange County, we still have the hospitalization is declining, uh, but it's declining slowly. And there's still over 500 cases in ICU in Orange County, which is high. Yes, that's, and I want to say, because you've been tweeting about good news, but it's really relative. Your September, you wouldn't have been considering this good news. You'd be horrified at how high the numbers have risen. So we had 250 people in ICU or thereabouts, I think 245 perhaps, over the summer in the peak of the July surge. So in July, when Orange County had its first serious surge in COVID cases, your listeners will remember, there were a little bit less than half of what we have now in ICU. So it's it's twice as bad now, and it's even net of the uh, decreases that we've seen in the last week or so, we're still above 500 in ICU. So it's, it's still, by any objective measure, a, a crisis. And uh, it's the ICU deaths that seem to drive the mortality, statistically speaking. I mean, that is to say, you know, mortality always consistently seems to be an echo of ICU occupancy, not necessarily on a one-to-one basis. That is in, to say that there's, there are people who die who, uh, who never entered the ICU, and there are people who, and there are many people who are hospitalized in ICU who survive. So it's not, it's not a, a sort of a mechanistic thing controlling the, the levers and pulleys, but the ICU occupancy just seems to be the harbinger of mortality, and that number is still high. So, right, and Nick, you've I'm always kept concerned. your eye on that as you're yeah, exactly. as you're posting us. I'm sure we'll have a lot more to say about vaccination. 
Well, that's really the central kind of theme for today because, and I'm, I'm just gonna post listeners uh, that I have finally, this morning, I had completed my registration for a COVID vaccination that will be administered at UC Irvine's Bren Center. But I wanted, it was so important for me to go through the course of all of these enrolling in different platforms because it was such an education in how the county is serving the public where we do have a vaccination available now. So I, I can use those data points to, to ask Andrew these questions. For one thing, that uh, they're, for screening, I'm wanting to know, Andrew, for asymptomatic folks, how, did the, how does the screening process work for asymptomatic people before they get their jab? Well, the protocol is that if, some, if someone has re recovered from an infection, that they should wait 90 days to get vaccinated. I mean, that's the current recommendation. But as far as someone who's asymptomatic can be vaccinated, I, I, I don't believe they're testing everyone before they vaccinate them. I, if they are, then that's news to me. I mean, asymptomatic people who have no COVID history can, can be vaccinated. They just roll up their sleeve and get the jab. So let me clarify. I mean, if someone is known to have COVID infection at, at the time, then, then the recommendation is to postpone right. vaccination. So there, there isn't a, a, a test requirement for vaccination. So if your KUCI listeners go to get vaccinated themselves, I mean, they won't be required to show a, a clean test to, to get in the vaccine center. And there is some risk to them that they will be exposed to COVID positive people while they're there because the person in front of them in the, in the queue could be an asymptomatic transmitter unbeknownst to everybody. So it's an exciting day to get vaccinated, but we need to keep masking for our own and everyone else's safety, including at the vaccine center, which may seem ironic, but I mean, it takes- No, it doesn't seem ironic yeah, at all. Yeah. So folks are asking if once a person is vaccinated, is it possible though they can be carrying COVID? I mean, there could be- So, so there's, yeah, there's a few moving parts here. I mean, uh, I mean, a lot of these COVID related issues have a lot of moving parts and it's probably a metaphor that you know, I've used too much, but I mean, the first issue is that is that nobody should consider themselves even presumptively immunized until uh, ten days after the uh, the second second dose, which is three weeks after the first. Well, three or four weeks, depending on which flavor of the vaccine was administered. But yes, so so I mean, let's just get that out of the way first, and and then second of all, but so suppose you're you know, you're, you're two weeks after your second shot. Can you still transmit? Well, the, the short answer is we don't really know because it hasn't been fully studied. And there's a possibility that the answer is yes. So ideally the COVID vaccine would be like a totally sterilizing vaccine. It would just prevent infection altogether. And there are examples of vaccines like that, the measles vaccine and the yellow fever vaccine are probably the two best vaccines that we have uh, for other diseases. And those vaccines just simply prevent infection. With the COVID vaccine, we don't know yet if, if maybe it just prevents serious cases. 
So it, it kind of nips the case in the bud before symptoms become severe, but it still allows for reproduction of the SARS-CoV-2 virus in the vaccinated person, meaning it knocks out the symptoms, but not the infection. And therefore a transmission may be possible even by vaccinated individuals. Now, some people might wonder, well, what's the point then? But the point is that you know, we're, we're going to eventually arrive at the nirvana, quote unquote, <laughs> in which everybody is vaccinated, you know. So, so even though there'll be transmission, it, it'll be transmission from one symptomless person to another person who also won't develop symptoms. And so you see, once we achieve, you know, this nirvana, then it, it'll be all good. I should add that I don't think anyone believes that you get a a vaccine that knocks out symptoms with, without also knocking down transmission. Like if you have fewer symptoms, you, you may have vaccinated people continuing to, to spread it, but. There's are, there are fewer vectors in a sense. Well, at the, I mean, just it, at the population level, there's gonna be less spreading because there's no way you knock out all these symptoms and still have just as much spreading. I mean, right. Um, well, they're not sneezing, they're not coughing. Right, but the, but we correct, but we do know that asymptomatic transmission occurs. So right, right. Um, so they're but, speaking. But something is just. I, I know this is going to make you roll your eyes, and that's why I'm using radio for these questions. Is that I mean, could I just be carrying it? I mean, I know it's not the cloud of aerosol droplets. I'm not breathing. But what if I'm? I've been in contact with some COVID positive individual. I, I mean, I could be carrying it on my person, though, right? And but that's too diffuse. That's too. It's, too minimal a dose? It's not just radio, it's KUCI. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know what you mean by that, actually. So, I mean, uh, I mean- Well, we were always concerned earlier on, and it wasn't such a thing later, but we were concerned about surfaces. So could no, we- No, we weren't. Human, but, oh, we were not. Okay, so, so that's a nothing burger, as you would say, uh, in, a, in a, yeah. a smaller water cooler that we can't carry unless we're carrying as- a COVID positive situation. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, you can't hijack my jacket. Yeah, co correct. Okay, because I'm, I'm gonna, yeah. I get asked all this stuff all the time. No, no, of course, and your listeners are uh, want to know, but uh, I mean, the va the vaccination is going to be a, a major net benefit. I mean, I, I mean, it's important not to uh, kind of fetishize the the idea that some people will still be able to transmit. Okay, when we're not uh, I so. Mean, there, yeah. So which which vaccine doesn't matter? Would you take? And we'll ask about that I, when the Johnson Johnson come in. It's next month, I guess. But well, if you so have a choice, yeah. In the in the United States right now, there are two authorized vaccines, and uh, I, I would take the first one I was offered. Okay, That's indifferent my, to. My, okay, my yeah. good, my good faith answer because okay. uh, you know I. Uh, that's kind of, yeah, that's my answer. I, I would take the first one offered. I, I don't see any, they're very, both very similar technologies, mRNA, and I don't see any um, major differences between them, so. So I've been a lot of questions about the variant protection as we're watching the rate in which the vaccinations are being distributed. So Andrew, what should we be concerned about as we learn about more variants coming from all over the world? 
Yes. So, I mean, there's a bunch of new strains or or variants as they're known. And one of them is called B117. It It may be better known to your listeners as the quote unquote UK variant, although the standard of, of nomenclature for viruses is, is meant to exclude the geographic designations, but but because of the unnecessary bias, it would. It yeah. I mean, co- correct. I mean, that's the thinking. And, uh, but I mean, your, your listeners will have heard of that and that variant. And the, the idea is that there's still a lot we don't know. I mean, as far as we can tell the currently authorized vaccines do offer protection against the new variant, uh, perhaps less protection than the strains that were prevalent when those vaccines were trialed in the fall of 2020. There's a, another strain which has been studied, and there's some evidence, at least in the lab, that it escapes convalescent plasma therapy and may well escape the, the current formulations of the vaccine. Uh, and when I say escape, I mean yes. uh, be evade, or, you know, not be. Not it's not be effective and treat exactly and protecting. Okay, that's what and I uh, so and the you know the you know, you know we are recording this interview on the twenty second of of January, January and things and, are going to uh, happen. I mean, on the question of the vaccine and its uh, ability to protect against all these new strains, this is something we're learning more about daily. So by the time this interview airs, there may well already be some new bombshell information, but but I can definitely answer your question that we'll have some durability. In the face of these new strains, which may or may not evade the currently authorized vaccines, the platonic ideal would be to vaccinate everyone right away because it, it gives you like kind of kind of you want to do like a thunderclap operation where you get everyone mm-hmm. vaccinated because it gives you suppression of the main strains and all these strains all these viruses kind of meandering around the population is is from where these these new strains originate i mean the viruses mutate all the time but but they form you know distinct strains when some trait emerges that you know allows it to spread more quickly or or what have you so if we, you know, could vaccinate all Americans like in two weeks, it would, you know, there's still maybe some strain out there in the, in the world that is less amenable to the vaccine, but we, we would really tamp down the transmission and, and we not only will we be safe from the main strain, but there won't be like another strain emerging in, in Poughkeepsie or whatever, or whatever, you know. So I'm going to hop on another, advance a different metaphor then there's no place for that virus to hop on and hitch a ride. If the thunderclap right. of vaccinations occurs, well, but the thing, but stops here, but, but here's the, but here's the rub exactly. But I mean, we're we're very far from that platonic right. ideal. I mean, the new executive branch of, of the U.S. government has has said uh, that they want to do 100 million doses in 100 days, and that's clearly you know aspirational more than operational, which is fine. I mean, you know, if you don't aim high, you're not going to you know land your goals, but. Uh, but even 100 million doses in 100 days is falling short of being enough and fast enough for us to completely evade these new strains. I mean, I saw something uh, last night that, you know, one expert suggests that up to nine tenths of 1% of viral transmission in California is B117, the new strain. So just about 1% of transmission in California today may be the new strain, but that's enough to kind of springboard uh, a much higher level of transmission. And Is that like four mil- under 4 million people could be for California? Uh, well, 
Well, 1% of the current cases, so well under 4 million. Oh, of the current case. I was thinking of the population. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, of the current cases. So, I mean, we're still dealing principally with the, you know, the same old coronavirus, but it's a concern that these strains can evade, you know, basically the vaccine may be less effective and therefore what happens when the vaccine is less effective, that the proportion of the population that you need to vaccinate becomes higher and therefore we want to roll it out to more people. And this all has to be done within a sort of time envelope or else what's the point? I mean, the point isn't to vaccinate everyone in 15 years. You know, it's just, it just makes everything harder when we have these new strains and, but your listeners are going to have to uh, just stay tuned for, you know, future updates from myself and other you know, UC Irvine experts who you interview to find out what's going on with, you know, how much protection the vaccines offer against the new strains. For those of you who just joined us, I want to make sure you know you're hearing. This is Andrew Neumer. He's UCI epidemiologist, professor in population health, disease prevention, and public health. He's my guest for the full hour, and we're recording this today on January 22nd. Um, I want to go back to the platforms where everybody's trying their best to sign up. Now, the, my original concern was how leaky are these platforms with all the patient information that attaches to when we sign up, whether it's the Othena, that's the Orange County Health Agency's platform, how leaky are they? Are, should people be a little skeptical or this is the risk cost benefit we're making? We want the vaccine, we're not so worried about patient information leaking to what other, other parties? Well, I mean, um, I'm not an expert on- um, It's a tech question. On, yeah, on, on health, uh, information I, IT for health, and I, I would, uh, and there's there's some colleagues I, you know on the UC Irvine campus who, who who study that phenomenon, and so they could maybe give you a better answer. But the vaccine distribution mega sites, the the Bren Center and the Disneyland, and there's one going up at Soka University in Elisa Viejo starting this weekend. You know they're all still bound by HIPAA, which is the federal statute on health privacy, so. I mean, there is that, and I can't really say more. I mean, I mean, I, other than they're bound by the same, you know, obligations of as your regular healthcare provider is. I mean, in in due course, people who aren't vaccinated at Disneyland and the Bren Center will will be offered vaccination through their normal healthcare the care provider. provider. Yeah, mm -hmm. like so, their HMO. I mean, obviously here in Southern California, Kaiser's a a big one, but. You know, many of your listeners will have other HMOs. I can't list them all by name, but like in, in, in due course, well, I mean, uh, eventually we'll just all be right. able to, to roll down to the pharmacy and just get it the way we get a flu jab, but. Or but the I mean, skilled nursing facilities and, and sort of institutional setting. Uh, certainly. Yeah. Okay. But so, so in due course, you know, people will be able to get vaccines from their regular healthcare provider. And so, just like a flu shot. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, if, if, so that's really all I can add on. But so what was troubling, I mean, is that if one platform isn't working very well and they are super clunky, you can't tell what's going on. You don't know if you're making progress. It stalls, it freezes, it does everything. I've experienced all that over the last uh, a couple of 
many trials of different kinds over the last, let's say, week and a half. So you don't want to keep spreading yourself around all different platforms, but that's the situation. So it's apparent. I don't know if you as an epidemiologist want to speak, Andrew, to how the rollout's taking place in Orange County. Is there a particular feature of that? There are many ways to look at there's the national level program that didn't happen up until this new administration is, is getting established. There's the priorities set by what the Orange County Board of Supervisors was going to tend to, where they're putting their resources in any kind of recovery and rescue. So we're looking at access issues in terms of language for people to navigate these platforms. We're looking at access for people using the vaccination site, going to the location where they're going to get their jab. So I don't know if you, you as an epidemiologist want to talk about what it takes to pay for a good public health system that could it could have looked a whole lot more differently than where we are right now, mired in lack of transparency, uncertainty. And there are so many people putting, squandering human hours and trying just to get an appointment for their first vaccination. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of aspects to that question. It's a, that's a really rich question, Claudia. Um, well, I want you to take it where you want to go yeah, first, and then I'll no. see what else is left. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, first of all, um, you know, the, the way it's been organized is that the up till now, and in fact, you know, even including now, right is, now. That, is that the feds allocated doses to the states and it was up to the states to figure out what was what. And some states, including California, have passed the buck, you know, along to the counties. And, you know, we've seen some differences in, across California counties and whether or not 65 plus people can be vaccinated. Some counties are still doing healthcare workers only. And it's just been a bit confusing because there are people who you know, live at the border of two counties and they're kind of equidistant driving distance from one or the other vaccination center. And they kind of figure, well, why can't I go here? And then, I mean, even people who are, as you point out, who are just focused on going to you know, the Disneyland center or whatever have had all sorts of website delays and and some of them are care providers. You, I mean, they are their spouse who's not a care provider. They get on, they get their, their appointment. But let's say a care provider I'm familiar with, and she needs to, because of all of the patient contacts she has, she needs to get on. And, it's, and she has, is having maddeningly unproductive results. I think she may have it registered now, but it's the, the very people that were the target for the first rounds they're having difficulties too, and they're a very sophisticated population. So the it's 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 maddening, Andrew. Well, yeah, and and I mean, I also my heart goes out also to senior citizens who may be less you know accustomed to using the World Wide Web for arranging things. Which uh, my understanding is that the the best way to make an appointment is through the web. But you know, n- not everyone is as tech savvy. Uh, I I mean, there is a kind of a a, a point that was embedded in your. Well, I was talking about access, Original or question. having it done, and access for other language users. That right. Well, one. there's there's that as well. I mean, I can't I can't really comment on. Um, I was talking about the priorities that various entities and government that are they're setting to to beef up their public health infrastructure, right? So that we know how it works, we know what's on us, we know when we're done, we don't squander our hours. It's just it takes a little bit of public money 
to build public health infrastructure. Well, yeah, let, let me explain. Like, this is the most ambitious vaccination program ever the United States has ever seen. So the thing that compares probably most with this is that is in 1955 when the inactivated polio vaccine was licensed. You know, there was this major push to get it out to the whole nation. And, you know, polio was kind of the, the big plague of its day. But even then, there were major differences. I mean, there are certain things that just don't scale as well as others. And the United States population was smaller in 1955. Also, you know, when you're vaccinating kids against polio, you don't have PPE requirements. I mean, or even now when you get your flu jab at the pharmacy, the pharmacist doesn't wear a mask. Well, correct. nowadays she does, but right. go back to, 19, uh, to 2018 or 20, pharmacist doesn't mask up before she gives you your flu jab. So you have, you know, all these P, you know, PPE requirements and then in polio. Well, and, then, in, and two doses. Polio was only one, correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, uh, yeah, correct. Not only that, but also with polio, you, you were talking about vaccinating principally children. I mean, older adults were already immune. So it was a, a kid's vaccination thing. And every school had a nurse back then. I mean, the school nurse was an American institution. Well, that's public infrastructure, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay. And, and we, don't, we don't have that by and large anymore. And it, and it doesn't even matter here because we're talking about a vaccine that's authorized for 16 and up. So the polio vaccine had all this built-in public health infrastructure, which in 2021 has now become totally dilapidated. And moreover, you know, they were using glass syringes that uh, were just sort of sterilized and reused. We, we don't do that anymore, which creates more, you know, material needs for the vaccine programs. And in some cases, they were using more than one kid per, per needle, which is, you know, God knows how many cases of hepatitis were transmitted Really? No, through yeah. that. But, uh, wow. but we certainly don't do that anymore. And uh, so, you know, every, everyone can rest assured that they will, you know, be getting a uh, injection with a single use syringe. sterilized, yes, sterilized needle and, and syringe, well, sterile needle and syringe that will be, uh, you know, it's going straight to the, to the waste after, after it's been used. But the point is, you know, there are just logistical challenges now that are even greater than what we had in 1955. So, and I should, I should actually correct myself and say, it was not the standard practice to reuse needles uh, without sterilizing them in the fifties. Uh, I, I think there are documented cases of that happening, but the standard thing that most people experienced was each kid had her own needle. So I, I just want to clarify that, but uh, I, I said what I said because I think there are some documented cases where the same needle was used for more than one kid, but that's certainly not the case today. But the, the point remains that, you know, this endeavor is, is the biggest, you know, challenge in that sphere. And, you know, just because we sent the, uh, you know, astronauts to the surface of the moon between 55 and today, you know, doesn't mean that we can simply solve all our problems with technologies. I mean, there, there are, scale issues that become very complicated when you're talking about, you know, vaccinating every person in the country above age 16 in, in the case of, you know, the current authorizations. And so, you know, it's just, it's, it's going to, to be, I mean, I think a hundred 
million doses in 100 days is uh, appropriately ambitious. Uh, as I said, I think it's aspirational, not operational, but I mean, that's, that's the numbers we need to be, but I, but I do, uh, you know, sort of applaud it because. Right. It's a target. You have to put up a target. You have to show strength. You have to show resolve. Exactly. I agree. So I was just mentioning a little earlier that Johnson and Johnson is expected to have their vaccine. I think there, are they not right in the middle of their third phase? Are, but is it anticipated to be available in February and a bit more simplified distribution sort well, of uh, conditions? Well, the Johnson, the, the Janssen vaccine, also known as the Johnson and Johnson, is it, it's in its third uh, phase three trial at the moment. And, you know, I mean, unless the data come back uh, showing poor results, it will be or become the third uh, vaccine to be authorized for use in the U.S. And it is, a, it is designed as a single dose vaccine. So all this kind of teeth gnashing about, well, you know, can I be sure that they'll have my second dose and all this stuff about, oh, I'm going to wait until they have both doses, you know, all that jazz is going to be totally academic for those people receiving the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So that really streamlines the operations and that's going to be really a welcome development. Moreover, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine has more lenient uh, storage criteria. So the logistics of getting the vaccine around on dry ice and all that jazz uh, are going to be greatly streamlined. So that's going to be a very, very welcome development. Of course, we're going to have to see what the effectiveness looks like when the trial data are released, but fingers crossed that it passes muster. And the, and the, the cooling, is it comparable to what the, um, uh, it's, it's the comparable. second one? Yeah, I mean, I think it's comparable to the seasonal flu vaccine in terms of storage requirements. I mean, all vaccines have some sort of special handling for shipping, but the Johnson and Johnson is just much more lenient than the, particularly the Pfizer vaccine is very stringent. Right. So to speak to the public infrastructure, I know you've talked a bit in the past about the leadership coming from the national level. Is there any of the new nominated appointments either the Center for Disease Control Director, Rochelle Walensky, Javier Becerra, who's going to be the Secretary of Health and Human Services, or I guess Dr. Anthony Fauci is continuing now. He just has to, his his straitjacket has been put back in the closet. So how are you feeling about these appointments from what you know about them as a public health professional? Yeah, well, so, I mean, I think the new administration has a, a strong team, you know, both in place and, and sort of moving into place. And there were some pretty well-sourced accounts in the New York Times and the Washington Post over the summer and fall of 2020 about how the uh, Centers for Disease Control in, in a number of instances was really hobbled by Washington, by the uh, Secretary of, uh, well, the Department of Health and Human Services um, under, you know, under which it sits on the org chart. And, you know, for the, you know, for the, for many months in the pandemic, you know, a number of us epidemiologists and other observers were, you know, quite disappointed in, in many aspects of the federal response, including that of the CDC. And we wondered aloud sort of publicly uh, on social media and elsewhere about, you know, why isn't the CDC doing this or why isn't the CDC doing that? And 
kind of, I won't rehash all of that, because, but your, your listeners can troll through my old uh, t- tweets if they're curious. But I mean, I, I haven't been shy about criticizing the CDC. And then, you know, a number of us were wondering what, if there was some more to the story, but, you know, without really having any inside knowledge, it's sometimes hard to know. And, uh, and then, as I said, the Times and the, and the Washington Post produced these, you know, documented, well-sourced, documented stories. This wasn't all just speculation by any means, that, that the Department of Health and Human Services was putting the brakes on what the CDC could do. And, and these were supported by, you know, Freedom of Information Act requests. So they And had, what they were doing was how, how the, the data was being routed, which is like everything. Well, no, that's, that's not even my largest concern. I mean, okay. I mean, I mean, the, the CDC was just generally, I mean, basically to summarize, to, told to, to sort of back off. But so, and I mean, I, with a new executive brand, well, with a new administration, you know, I do expect to see more more movement along those lines. So I'm I'm very optimistic that that we'll see changes. We'll see a more proactive CDC, and I think you know that's that's going to be for everyone's benefit. Uh, I, I don't see the, frankly, the point of what. The prior administration was was doing uh, at all. That being said, I mean, you know, if you look at Europe, Italy, Belgium, the Netherlands, Spain, Portugal, Germany, Switzerland, the UK, and, and so on, you know, these are all sort of uh, liberal democracies in the, in the sort of general scope of the term. And all these countries have been struggling more or less with containing the coronavirus. And and they they all have, you know, very professional, very competent, and better resourced public health departments. So I don't think that, you know, we can say that the the change of administration is going to make a sea change, because that would imply that the problem was only the previous administration. And if you look in comparison to Italy or, you know, Spain or Belgium, you know, those countries are also struggling mightily with with Mm -hmm. everything that's going on. And so it, it's just, it's not uniquely American problem. And, you know, I, I think there are, there are many things that the federal government should have done in the last 12 months, which they didn't do. And I think it's, I regret you know, immensely that, that certain things weren't done in terms of mask mandates, in terms of testing regimes, in terms of surveillance regimes, in terms of coordinated national strategies that all were fail, 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 fail. But at the same time, like it's a, it's a global phenomenon and you know getting a executive branch that's more interested in tackling the problem is going to help but i don't think your listeners should expect to see you know the the pandemic just wither and die because because the cdc has you know a more proactive uh, di- director which it does now but i'm still you know relatively circumspect that about declaring, you know, that this is going to be a turning point, unfortunately. So, Andrew, I'd like to have you look over the way in which the COVID confirmed cases have, how that bar chart's been looking since a year ago. And I'd like for you to tell us whether that trend surprised you in the form it took and what kind of seasonality will factor into trends forward? That's a great question. Well, in, here in California, I, I actually think the, the epidemic curve, as we would call it, has been kind of exactly what I expected. Really? But there, there have been some surprises nationwide. So 
California, we had minimal cases last spring, and we, we were under a pretty strict statewide shelter-in-place order or stay-at-home order. If you Shelter-in-place is really a little too strong, uh, so stay-at-home order, let's say. And then over the summer, we had a, a mini wave, and then in the, starting in the fall and continuing into the winter, we had a major wave, and it seems to have crested now, although fingers crossed that it will be continuing to go down. And so what we have here is a lot of seasonality. So it's worse in the wintertime because all respiratory viruses are highly seasonal with a winter dominance. The coronaviruses that cause the common cold, the rhinovirus that causes the common cold, influenza A virus, influenza B virus, measles, all of these viruses are seasonal with the winter dominance. And what we have with the, with the COVID-19 is the emergence of a, of a new virus that, for which the human population was you know, 12 months ago immunonaive. So we kind of were able to push it out in California until the summer, but then we got a summer wave. And now the KCI listeners are going to be wondering, didn't I just say it's winter dominant? It is winter dominant, but in the first emergence of the virus, it kind of pushes through that seasonality because the human population is so immunonaive. So we, we get a summer wave in spite of the winter dominance of the virus. And then it dissipated. And then we saw, you know, the fall wave. And so moving forward, COVID is going to become a highly seasonal phenomenon with a winter dominance, because in the summer of 2021, it won't have the oomph to push through the seasonality in my prediction. So I don't think we will see a major wave in California this summer. The immunonaivity is gone of the population. Many, many people have already been infected. And of course, now we have the vaccine being rolled out. And even though there are problems with the vaccine rollout, I mean, I, I think by June, July, August, a lot of those will be overcome, I, I hope at least. And so what I'm expecting to see is a quiet summer and perhaps uh, some more activity in the fall. Now, there's a number of angles here. First of all, what has surprised me is how the United States has been so different in different regions. The COVID-19 epidemic in the United States is really a patchwork of different regional epidemics. And the Midwest has been relatively spared, but the Northeast was hard hit last spring. And one of my biggest surprises has been how much the regions have been sort of out of phase with one another. And so, you know, I, I'm not sure when, you know, Chicago will have its big wave and I'll be surprised if it, if it doesn't, but you know, New York has had its big waves. Um, Los Angeles has, but the Midwest has been relatively spared. And that kind of surprises me because you can get on a plane from, uh, you know, SNA airport and, go and fly to Chicago, even now air travel was never interrupted. So that's kind of a, a strange thing in my, in my view, but, but getting back to the pure seasonality aspect one, here in Cal- One point of uh, information or clarification though, I thought the Great Lakes, especially Wisconsin were hit really hard before Thanksgiving. They, they were hit hard was, in the fall, but there it was wasn't- campaigning, super spreading a lot of big crowds. Well, the Midwest was hit hard, had their wave in the fall, but it wasn't as bad. Okay, you thought, no. okay, you didn't think it was bad. Yeah. All I can no. think of is black around that time of the year. Okay. 
it, it, it wasn't it wasn't that bad, honestly. I, I mean, Illinois is, is actually still above California in terms of deaths per million of population. So I guess they had their moment. But some of the other states in the Midwest, like uh, Minnesota and, and, and so on, are actually doing well. They're doing relatively better now. California is actually still below Minnesota in terms of deaths per million. I'm just looking at the table. So, you know, it's been a... Uh, interesting mix. I mean, LA as a county is uh, is doing worse than a lot of those states. So it just depends on how you kind of slice and dice the data. LA County has 1,500 COVID deaths per million inhabitants. And if it were, if it was a state, it would be up there with um, the Dakotas and uh, Arizona. And so California as a whole has been doing uh, a little bit better than, than LA County. New Jersey and New York are still the highest uh, mortality, and that's from the uh, uh, well, highly influenced by the original wave from the spring of 2020. But getting back to the seasonality aspect in California, the KECI listeners can take heart from the fact that the summer of 2021, I think, will be a respite. It'll be milder than what we're going through now, and it will be milder than last summer. So the summer of 2021 will feel the most normal we've felt in a long time. And so that is, that is good news. And, and, and I hope we use that time to get uh, all caught up on our vaccinations. vaccinations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that if people you know, haven't, haven't been able to get it by then, that we'll use that time to catch up. What worries me a little bit is a scenario in which people kind of assume it's over forever and they attribute this summer lull uh, not to the seasonality that's tr- uh, going to be a major factor in it, but they attribute it to the vaccination that we have done and that we will have done in the spring. And so they'll say, you know, we've got this licked. And I think we will see a fall wave uh, in 2021. Um, so yes, 2021. Uh, and my, you know, I, th- I think we will have trans- increases in transmission and in, in, in cases in fall of 2021, depending on you know, how many people we can get vaccinated. But remember, it's going to probably in the, in, the, in the medium term be a bit like uh, flu in that, in that we'll need to re-up the shots. Every year, they kind of tweak the flu shot a little bit to try to stay one step ahead of the virus. And I think it's going to be very similar with, with COVID. So, but so- there would be a flu shot that at overlapping when there's the original vaccine? Could that be an overlap at some point? Uh, I mean, I, th- I think as early as the fall, we may see them rolling out like vaccine 2.0. Okay. Um, I mean, there's a lot, there's, we're getting into the area where there's a lot of unknowns here, but. Now, this is really interesting to consider that though now. Well, this is very I mean, good. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I just think, I mean, the, the fall of 2021 is not going to be as bad as the fall that we've just come through, but I think there will be an uptick again. And the thing that I want your listeners to understand is that it'll be acting like a flu then. It'll be acting like the, it'll be, it'll be starting to act like the flu. Exactly. It'll be like a bad flu season, except it will be COVID and it will be kicking up in November the way flu does. But the point is in July and August, we will be in a much better place. And we shouldn't attribute that only to vaccination or to that we've licked it forever. We should attribute that in part to seasonality, which means that in the, the fall of 2021 and the winter of 
21 slash 22, there still will be a resurgence in cases. You know, hopefully not too many, but I, I don't think anyone really expects at this point that this will be like, you know, the, the measles vaccine where you get it once as a kid and then you get it, you get a booster and then you're done for life. Um, well, most of you epidemiologists have been doing your job and letting people know that, but not everybody was paying attention to the sort of the trends that were coming our way and underestimated how much a surge we'd have. So I hope people are starting to pay attention now. But Andrew, I want to know though, when you say keep on top of this, what is the, What's operationalizing our going and in, going into the fall 2021? What do you mean by how do we keep on it? What's that look like? What's our behavior? Well, what are our precautions? I mean, I think K through 12 will be back in, in full swing the way we normally know it. As you mentioned earlier yeah. in this, this conversation, yes. Yeah, and I think college education will be students on campus. I mean, there may be some classes in which you know, their meeting is hybrid or online, but the campuses will be much fuller. And I mean, I think, I think we will see more masks. That's what I mean. What, yeah. we're, what are we doing as opposed to what it looks well, like? Well, what we're doing is uh, we're going to see more masks. I think, uh, I, I'm not sure if there will be mandates or not. I think it's too early to say, but I think a lot of people will voluntarily wear some kind of mask. How many are you going to wear at once in the fall? I mean... It'll be interesting. I, I don't know if I'm going to be back in the classroom or if I'm going to be teaching uh, online. And I don't, and it depends on um, the setting. The setting. And also, you know, I mean, I, I haven't been vaccinated yet. I assume uh, I, I will be by then. So we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, I intend to, uh, you know, I, I find masking a relatively small inconvenience. So I, I don't mind continuing to mask for another 12 months from, from today or however long, you know, I deem it's necessary, but I don't want to just, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not in love with it. You know, I don't want to just, uh, oh, I'll just mask for the rest of my life. I mean, I understand people who, who think it's a drag to walk around with a mask all the time because uh, it's not how we've been, you know, it's not what we've been accustomed to. So, I mean, pushing into the fall, we're getting into the area where there's a lot of sort of unknowns and, so we'll have to sort of update your, your listeners in, in the future about when we know more. But I do think, you know, the KUCI listeners should know that the summer of 2021 is, is not going to be as weird as the summer of 2020. I'm going to talk to the KUCI station manager. I'm going to bring this to, I can't wait until I've got that console under my fingertips. So, but I wanted to ask though, I want to just for a moment before you conclude here, is the seasonality, how much of a factor is pandemic fatigue in exerting a force on those trends, especially in, let's call it American societal culture? Well, that's a great question. I mean, pandemic fatigue, you know, writ large may yet cause like a double peak uh, this winter. That's what I, but, I'm wondering about that. We've, we're kind of on notice about how powerful pandemic fatigue is. So I'm, I'm already trying to figure out how we can get those flyovers up and down the, the, the beaches to warn people. <laughs> well, yeah. COVID advisories to fly over on the, with the leisurely congregating on the beaches. Well, yeah, a, a plane dragging a, a banner that says, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I love it. But I mean, uh, just to be clear, uh, so your listeners understand, I actually think going going to the beach can be done safely. And uh, oh yeah, you you told I, us that last year. Yeah, exactly. 
So, uh, so go to the beach this, this summer. It's, it's, it's outdoors and it's, it's, it's in the, you know, basking in the UV radiation of the sun. And, uh, you know, we've already seen that there, there, there isn't a, a ton of transmission at the, at the beaches, but, um, you know, the other thing we should probably touch on before we break is KECI is, is based in, in Orange County, which is, you know, obviously not far from the, well, the Pacific coast and, uh, you know, we've talked about how Los Angeles is one of the hardest hit counties, and that's obviously uh, along the Pacific. But, you know, mostly this is becoming an inland California phenomenon. The highest mortality counties are inland California, not along the coast. And th that's something I think a lot of people don't ap appreciate uh, enough. And the, the impacts that, you know, rural uh, agricultural California are facing and and that the people who live in those counties have the highest mortality burden. So Imperial County has a 2,700 COVID deaths per million population. And Los Angeles is, is, is next on the list. But after that, the rest of the top 10, well, Imperial County obviously doesn't touch the Pacific Ocean, but uh, Los Angeles is the only county in, in the highest 10 counties that is on the Pacific littoral. Uh, uh, Stanislaus, Merced, Tulare, Riverside, San Joaquin, Kings County, Fresno County, Madera County are the next highest mortality counties in the state. So these are all in inland counties with where you have agriculture as a, as a principal industry. And so, I mean, that, the inequalities that COVID-19 is laying bare, both in our own state and nationwide, are definitely something that we're going to have to have a reckoning with, I mean, ongoing, but also, you know, when all is said and done, because those are, are, are pretty profound. I mean, it's not principally wealthy communities on the coast that are uh, impacted, but poor uh, working class agricultural communities. With dense the... settlement patterns. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's partly what makes LA so special. There's so many dense settlement patterns. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I mean, one thing people say was, you know, how can rural population densities are so low? How, how can this be? But, you, you know, the, there... there's concentrations. Exactly. Exactly. So, so you have, if you take just people and divide by, you know, uh, square miles, it's low, but, but what happens is that agricultural workers are often living in a dormitory, like uh, setting at very close quarters with one another. So, so that's what you've got, you know, going on, you know, it, it's, it's constantly evolving and the, the coastal counties were sort of on the leading edge, but they've been falling off the list and the rural counties have been, you know, rocketing up, up the list. And so we'll have to see where this goes. I mean, uh, we'll have to see what happens uh, when all is said and done, but it's a trend that I've noticed and something that I think is noteworthy. Well, I'm gonna just do the shorthand here, Andrew Neumer, and direct people to the handle that I mentioned in your introduction. And they folks can go to Twitter and follow at Andrew Neumer and watch you watching the counties and the states as well as the countries. For those of you who just tuned in, my guest is Andrew Neumer, epidemiologist at UCI, professor in population health, disease prevention, and public health. He's my guest for this full hour and reminding people this is being recorded on January 22nd. So I don't know if you have anything new to say about how we ought to be dealing with this time remaining we have together today, whether what we do about opening up classrooms. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really tricky one. I mean, particularly K through 12. I, I think the data on that is kind of like a Rorschach test. Like people 
bring to that what you know people see in those data kind of what they want to see because breaking it down there's students that's one cohort there that that's an age group with different kinds of attributes with uh, their being infected by it and their ability to spread it there's the educators there's the administration there's the families that the students go back to from the classroom so isn't isn't that part of the drawing that there's so many moving parts to say yeah i mean i mean i mean the issue is that i mean k through eight say or k through six is is really less worried to me than you know eight through than high school so you know, I, I think, I mean, even now in many parts of the, the country, there's in-person schools, but I mean, my vision is that the rest of the school year is going to be kind of uh, be weird. And then, um, you know, some places will be virtual, some places will be in-person, people will argue back and forth about it. And, and then the fall of 2021, I, I think schools everywhere will reopen. I mean, because you know, by then there'll be enough people with the vaccine and God willing, the vaccine won't, you know, escape, the, the strains won't escape the vaccine as we, as we spoke about earlier right. in, in the show. And, you, you know, I mean, in, in the United States, everything is local when it comes to education. And so all the school districts are going to do a hodgepodge of different approaches. But I, I think by the fall of 2021, there's going to be absolutely no appetite for, for more of this, uh, you know, uh, school by by internet, um, you know, primary education by by internet. So e even if the pandemic is somehow still raging in in the fall of 2021, I think we're going to be seeing in-person schools because not only um, you know not only are more people going to be vaccinated, and not only is are we going to approach natural herd immunity reg regardless. There's the issue of like even people who are pretty strict about saying no schools have to close i mean how long can we can we do this i mean i don't think anyone thinks that school over a piece of software is as effective as really going to school and so the burden of proof on keep the schools closed crowd gets higher because if, if we're talking about interrupting school you know next school year then we're talking about you know, you've got the tail end of the previous school year, which was interrupted, and then you've got all of this school year, and then you've got another school year. And I count myself, for me, the school's question is a very nuanced one. It's a very difficult one. And, uh, and I count myself, you know, among those who feel like, you, you know, kids can, can bounce back, like kind of like a rubber ball from, from like an interruption that's not too long. And I, I don't, fully buy into this idea that we're that there's permanent irreparable damage being done to kids although I who who don't have in-person schools for a relatively short amount of time although it is it is a plausible hypothesis it's one that will need to be studied and um, I know it's I, anecdotal and I know you're you're certainly more interested in lots larger sorts of accumulation of, of observations but just in today's LA Times was another anecdote about one child, she was done. I, I think she was in the primary level, that, that, that child, and she was done March of 2020. I, I think there's gonna be so many sort of hidden costs 
that we're going to be horrified, Andrew, when we when the dust settles and institutions all over open up. Well, I think I think we better gird ourselves for some pretty disappointing kinds of developments as a result. Well, I mean that that remains to be seen. I mean, I I, I think I think we won't be able to keep schools closed or hybrid or or you know any kind of interruption you know be, beyond the current academic year uh, i think so so i mean my prediction would be in in late august of 2021 you know the school year will start and it will be a normal school year in terms of people will be in school uh, i mean there may be some some masking going on but kids will be going to school physically yes. from home in the fall of of 2021, and I mean, it, I guess it remains to be seen also what you know, the role of, of the uh, of teachers unions in, in that. Uh, I mean, some of them have been pretty cautious, shall we say? About well, it's about, a jungle for them right now. I mean, I, yeah. it'll look so much different in August. So I, I think that well, there pre- would be, presumably, but um, it ha- it has to. You know, yeah, it has well. to. Not because I said so, but it, because it, there will be, there's going to be so much more in place and more, more leadership, more information, more resources in terms of kinds of vaccines and that kind of thing. It just, it will, I'm sure, be an entirely different world with the, the carnage of, of what has taken place with, as a result of COVID up to now. Well, I, I want to thank you so much. Andrew, for taking time yet again to be on the show. Stay safe, will you? Absolutely, always. And uh, to you and all your KUCI listeners as well, please everyone stay safe and be well in these unusual times. My guest was Andrew Neumer, UCI epidemiologist, professor in population health, disease prevention and public health, always the straight shooting font of information. Thank you, Andrew. My pleasure. On next week's show will be Costa Mesa Mayor Katrina Foley, one of five candidates running in the March 9th special election to fill the recently vacated 2nd District Board of Supervisors. I'm reaching out to all five candidates running in the special election, hoping to schedule each one of them before March 9th. In the second segment, Girl Scout CEO Vicki Shep is going to get some tough questions for me. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Masks, wearing mine with my vaccine.